Welcome to Many Happy Returns, where we aim to make you a better investor. I'm Roman. And I'm Michael. We're rapidly approaching the time again when the US toys with defaulting on its national debt. If the $31 trillion debt ceiling were breached without the limit being raised, it's fair to say that all hell would break loose. I want to know how likely a default actually is, and what would happen to markets if the US really jumped off the cliff. And in today's dumb question of the week, who is the national debt owed to anyway? Okay, let's get into it. Romin, I think it says something about human nature that every few years we find ourselves in this position of having to discuss something which is pretty nonsensical, but yet has huge impacts for the global economy. Yes. And this one is a real doozy because if this thing were to happen, then effectively you've pulled the rug under the entire financial system globally. So I think you can't underestimate the size of this tail risk. It's one of those real black swans, isn't it? It's an event that is pretty unlikely to happen, touch wood. But if it did, yeah, disaster. And yet it seems to happen regularly. And every time it's the same kind of behaviour from political parties in the US, which is this kind of brinkmanship. So maybe let's start with the obvious question. What is the debt ceiling? Well, it's kind of interesting if you look at the history of it. So before 1917, every bond that was issued by the US government had to be approved by Congress. So they had to agree on the coupon. They had to agree on the maturity of the bond. I mean, can you imagine that today? Oh, right. So they were like, I want to pay some salaries of my staff. Can I issue a bond, please, Congress? Yeah, or we're going to have a war, so we'll need lots of bonds. <laughs> I mean, that will always get funded by America. Oh, controversial. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but then people realised that wasn't practical. And of course, they were issuing more debt because the country was growing rapidly, it was developing. Then in 1917, they created the Second Liberty Bond Act, it was called. Why this was quite radical was that it introduced an aggregate limit on federal debt. It also imposed limits on specific debt issues. So if you had a bond of, I don't know, 1923, then you'd say you can only issue so much of this bond. Because what governments sometimes do is tap an existing issue. But then that was decided to be impractical leading into the Second World War, because wars are very expensive. So in 1939, they introduced a general limit on any federal debt. I mean, I'm joking about America getting into wars, but I'm pretty grateful they came in in 1930. <laughs> well, here's a controversial statement for you. The winner of a war is determined by how much debt they can issue. You could argue that the UK won the war against France because we were better at issuing debt. But look, let's pass that by. You're always <laughs> looking to take credit for the city, Roman. It's never the soldiers. It's those bankers saved us again. Well, look, you've got to pay for the guns. You've got to pay for the food. And England was just very good at issuing guilds and better than France. And ultimately, that led us to victory, you could argue. Obviously, we had brave soldiers as well. <laughs> yeah. But let's get back to America and their crazy system. So initially, that ceiling was kind of laughable now. You could issue a single bond in this size, but it was $45 billion. And the current debt ceiling is $31.381 trillion. It's quite a limit, and it's staggering that they're almost at it. <laughs> <laughs> the thing is, if you've got a big economy and it's growing, the US is, of course, the biggest economy in the world. What really matters is the size of the debt relative to GDP. And US GDP last year was about $23 trillion. So relative to GDP, $30 trillion sounds like a lot. I mean, it's over 100% of GDP. That is quite a lot by historic standards. But the question is, is it sustainable? 
And it's just kind of getting to the point where it's a little bit questionable as to whether it is sustainable without cutting spending. Oh, I mean, let's park that for one second and just wrap up on the question of what is the debt ceiling. (laughs) Really, it's just a way of keeping a lid on how much the government can spend. So if I'm getting this right in summary, a government obviously has to spend money on wars, on pensions, on healthcare, whatever it might be. And it has taxes where it raises money to fund some or all of that spending. If there's a gap between the two, what's called the deficit, then it will issue bonds and raise debt to plug the gap. And over time, if you're running persistent deficits, then you build up this big national debt. But the interesting thing in the US, if you look at their political structure, how it's defined in the Constitution, it's Congress that controls the purse strings, right? They pass spending bills and tax bills, which set how much legally the government has to spend. And then separately, they also set this debt ceiling limit which is, I think, where this kind of nonsense comes in, because the debt limit does not authorise any new government spending, right? If you raise the debt limit, it's not saying go and spend more money. It's simply permitting the US Treasury to continue financing the existing obligations that Congress passed over the years. And this is one of the things that people often get wrong, which is they're saying, look, this is stopping you from spending new money. No, this is just an agreement to make good on the things you've already agreed to. And I think the way that the debt limit has been raised has changed over the years. So most recently, Congress raised the debt limit in 2021 by 2.5 trillion, which is where we got to the 31 trillion today. So it's raising it by specific dollar amounts. But for most of the 2000s, it was being raised by like a time limit. So it's basically saying there is no debt limit for another five years or whatever, which seems like a more sensible way of doing it, doesn't it? Because it's quite hard for a government to actually forecast when it's going to hit a dollar amount debt limit. Yeah, I think they can't do it. I mean, just look at the time when the money runs out. They have to represent that as a kind of probabilistic event. Janet Yellen has just written a letter to Congress. She's the Treasury Secretary for the United States. So the actual process is that the government starts to take extraordinary measures to prevent them defaulting on their debt. And she thinks that that's going to happen around January the 19th. So the actual letter says, on Thursday, January the 19th, 2023, the outstanding debt of the US is projected to reach the statutory limit. So as we record this podcast, we're three days before that event. But notice how she phrases it. It is something which is uncertain. You can't track it to the second. But before we panic, everyone, Thursday isn't actually the real limit, (laughs) is it? (laughs) These extraordinary measures can push the deadline out a bit. So she goes through all of the extraordinary measures which they do. What kind of thing are we talking about? So, I mean, the most obvious ones, if you go to visit the US, some of the public parks will be shut down because you can't afford to pay the salaries of the employees there. And usually the pay is backdated. Once the debt ceiling is raised again, those workers will get their paychecks. Yeah, and I think in this case, she's talking about suspending new investments in the civil service retirement and disability fund and the postal service retirement health benefits fund. So there's all these things which the government has to contribute to on a monthly basis, and it can kind of pause them for a bit. And then hopefully, when the debt ceiling's raised again, yeah, like you say, it can make up the difference. But it can't do that forever. That's right. And she says in the past, even threats that the US government might fail to meet its obligations have caused real harms, including the only credit rating downgrade in the history of our nation in 2011. 
This was under the Obama administration. Yeah, if you look back to 2011, you can actually see the effect on the stock market, on the bond market of this debt ceiling debunked. And it really was kind of embarrassing for the US as a nation. And it's funny, I remember at the time, the chief economist at the bank I worked at kind of poo-pooed it. He kind of said, oh, it's not a big deal. And a lot of the Americans I spoke to were quite embarrassed, I think, quite defensive about the whole episode. But the effect on the stock market was quite marked. So if you look at the US equity market during the course of summer 2011, there was a roughly 17, 18% fall in the US equity market. And it gradually recovered from that as the debt ceiling was raised. But it certainly shook both the equity and the bond markets. So yields increased for US treasuries and the global stock market fell. It's interesting, isn't it? So coming close to hitting the debt ceiling is one of those rare situations where the price of stocks and treasury bonds fall together. I know we've seen that over the last year because of high inflation, but this is kind of the other situation where that can happen. There is a third case, which is when the Fed raises interest rates. That knocks bonds as well as equity. So those are the three things, debt ceiling, Fed hike, or talking about a Fed hike and a taper tantrum. And the third one is kind of related to the first, which is high inflation. But I remember at the time, it was August the 2nd in 2011, and literally hours before the Treasury's deadline, when they said they might have to default, Congress passed this Budget Control Act. And it had a two-stage increase of the debt limit up to $16 trillion, which now seems, again, laughably small. But as a result of that, S&P downgraded the US's credit rating from AAA to AA. And you mentioned the costs to the economy. There are some estimates from the US government that the delays in raising the debt ceiling led to an increase in the Treasury's borrowing costs of about $1.3 billion for that fiscal year. That's significant. And it's just money that the US doesn't have to spend, right? It's all over a drama, a pantomime. You know, I mean, you could say that from the UK's point of view, we can't really criticise them as a country which still has a moron premium on our government debt. Yeah, if you're talking about political dysfunction, we've, uh, in a way, we've beaten them over the last few years. So the situation we're in now, these extraordinary measures that Janet Yellen's talking about, she's kind of estimating that that will delay a default until around early June. Now, it's like you said, it's extremely hard to predict these things, weirdly. So there was a quote from one of the Treasury officials, which said, to put the probability distribution into context, the federal government's gross daily cash flow has averaged nearly $50 billion throughout the second half of 2022, which equates to more than $12 trillion annually, which means that even a tiny forecast miss in percentage terms can materially move the date which the Treasury would exhaust its resources. So I wouldn't underestimate the cost of a miscalculation. You know, if the government is playing chicken here, which they usually do, and by government, I mean both parties, of course, then it's a very dangerous game. And it's quite tedious. You know, every time we come down to the wire and somehow they pull out an agreement at the last minute. Because the political game here, at least in this instance, is the Republicans in Congress are saying the debt's really high. We need to cut the deficit. Therefore, we need to slash spending on Social Security or whatever it might be. And we're not going to pass a debt limit increase until you agree to do that. So they're kind of saying, we're going to hold a gun to the US's head in yeah, a way, yeah. <laughs> unless you give us what we want. Because they only control the House of Representatives. The Democrats control the Senate and the White House at the moment. So it's a standoff, basically. Yeah, and it just recurs and it's quite tedious and it always creates uncertainty. So you can kind of see why some people say, look, 
politicians can't be trusted to do this game of chicken. And that's why there's a movement, I think, to remove the idea of a debt ceiling altogether. Oh, I thought you were going to start arguing for a benevolent dictatorship. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, I mean, the debt ceiling, let's be honest, it doesn't make any sense because it's talking about laws that Congress has already passed. They've told the administration what to spend and then saying, well, you can't spend it. Like there's two conflicting laws. And it's like the government is hitting itself over the head. Why would you have this regular bloodletting and loss of credibility for the US government? It makes no sense. So having said all this, it's probably unlikely to happen, right? We think that there will be some sort of resolution. But what happens if there isn't? What if there's an accident, Roman? What would happen if the US defaulted on its debt? US debt, US treasuries underpin the entire global financial system. Because if there is one risk-free asset, which almost every institution trusts, it's going to be lending money to the US government because it's the biggest, strongest economy in the world. Now, if you take away that safety net, every interest rate in the world would increase. And that's because the risk-free rate globally is kind of underpinned by US debt. It's the kind of safest thing out there. And every risky product has a spread to that risk-free rate. So literally, you'd be raising interest rates on every rate market in the world simultaneously. At jackknife speed. Yeah. And if you don't like what happened after the Fed raised interest rates, you're not going to like this one little bit. right? So So what you're talking about is people's mortgage rates going way up, companies' borrowing costs going way up. Equity markets would crash globally, and every fixed income instrument would crash globally simultaneously. So Moody's Analytics did a report where they estimated that it would cost American households around $15 trillion in wealth, with stocks dropping by, you know, as much as a third overnight. Now, you know, how can you predict something like this, right? It's the ultimate black swan. But I think it gives a scale of it right. But if we jumped off the cliff, it's going to be bad when we hit the floor. (laughs) But I think a lot of people would question the viability of the US government if this happened. Because one thing you've got to do is keep the lights on, right? You've got to keep people warm. You've got to keep the government running. And this would be an obvious failure in their ability to do that. And self-inflicted. And the thing that some people say is the government would have enough cash flow to keep paying bondholders, right? To not default on its debt so long as it then stopped paying the salaries for federal workers, for example. Now, whether you could do that legally, I doubt it. But even if you could... That's not going to be good for the economy either, right? Just pulling all of that government spending out overnight. And it would just be an atrocious thing to do. You know, all these people who work for the government, of which there are millions, wouldn't have a paycheck. (laughs) That's kind of abysmal. And Social Security would stop. People would stop getting their retirement benefits. I mean, can you imagine what would happen in terms of popular reaction to that? It would be catastrophic, I think, in terms of political stability. So in terms of political calculus... I think politicians must see this. You know, they talk about it, they flirt with the idea of defaulting on US debt. But in the event, unless they're absolutely bonkers, they wouldn't do it. And yet, you see some people in US government at the moment who are populist politicians. And I just wonder whether they have the kind of understanding of the consequences which would make them step back from the brink. I think that's right. It does worry me more than on previous occasions, because if you see something like the election of Kevin McCarthy, the House Speaker, the Republicans in Congress were willing to do something which was quite unprecedented. 
by like making him stand for election, what was it, dozens of times yeah. in the end? It got Fifteen, super embarrassing. <laughs> so like, yeah, I wouldn't rule anything out, even if it is highly unlikely. And to make your own party look like a laughing stock as a result, you know, they were willing to do that. So I think, you know, this kind of political movement that we've seen elsewhere, and here I'm thinking about Brexit in the UK, where you are willing to inflict political damage due to political beliefs, is a trend which is, seems to be spreading across the world. And it's a bad trend, in my opinion. Oh boy, I am looking forward to the feedback we're going to get after this. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I think at this point, very few people would deny that the Brexit that we had caused economic damage. And if you speak to anyone who works in the importing industry or anything that depends on imports, they'll tell you about the paperwork that's now required and they'll spit blood over it usually. If there's one thing that a US debt default would be good for, I think it's your YouTube views. <laughs> I hate to say this, but every time there's one of these massive ructions in politics or markets, we get loads of people sign up to our channel. I think it's because, you know, we don't try to do this kind of doom porn approach and people seem to like that. And I usually say everything's going to be okay. But in this case, I don't think I'd be saying that. And there'd be lots of YouTube lives as a result of this, if it did happen. Yeah. I mean, if worst came to the worst and the US defaulted and couldn't pay back bondholders, could the Fed save us? Could the Fed do something? We always talk about how powerful they are. Do they have a bit of magic up their sleeve? Well, the good thing is they own lots of treasuries. And if you look at the Fed's balance sheet, it's still not much less than the $9 trillion it peaked at. And a lot of that is US Treasuries and mortgage-backed securities. So one of the options which the Fed has discussed, and this was during conference calls and meetings in 2011 and 2013, what they could do is treat those US Treasuries as if they hadn't defaulted. In other words, they'd still be worth par $100. So it could just start pretending they were still getting its interest payments. <laughs> yes. But what it could do, if there's people who own the defaulted debt privately, you know, you and I, we own some treasuries, the US isn't paying us our coupon, the Fed could buy them off us at par, right? And could just assume all liabilities. But let's just look at what the consequences of that are. <laughs> <laughs> so people kind of balked at the fact that the Fed's balance sheet ballooned to $9 trillion. This would be a huge increase in the size of the Fed's balance sheet. Currently, it doesn't own a massive proportion of US Treasuries. But at that point, you know, we're talking about owning much more of the US Treasury market and the outstanding debt. So it would make the Fed's balance sheet balloon out of all comprehension, really. Yeah, I guess it depends on how much of the debt is being defaulted on. Because if it's some but not all, the Fed could kind of step in and buy the ones that are defaulted and sell the ones that haven't if they've got some on their balance sheet, and kind of make it neutral overall. I mean, the market's going to crash and all this, right, like we <laughs> talked about. But I don't know, you'd have to do something, and they'd have to step in to support money market funds, as we always say. <laughs> oh, money market funds would be the least of the problems. I mean, just imagine what other assets they'd have to buy. You know, the treasury market would probably seize up. So that means they'd have to become the buyer of last resort. First, middle, and last resort, probably. <laughs> yes. So, you know, to some extent, they could kind of paste over the yawning cracks in the treasury market. You know, they do have unlimited resources, but at a certain point, you can only rustle up cash from nowhere to a certain extent. And it would have to be agreed by the US Treasury, which probably would agree to it because we'd be talking about real problems. 
And the other thing the Fed worries about is always maintaining its independence, right, and not being seen as a political entity. And so if you look at those transcripts from the calls in 2011 and 2013, like you talk about, where they were kind of wargaming this situation of what would they do? Yeah. The transcript said, such an approach could insert the Federal Reserve into a very strained political situation. That's a bit of an understatement, isn't it? And could raise questions about its independence from debt management issues faced by the Treasury. Because the Fed isn't there to finance US government deficits, right? That's the point. That's not what it's meant to be doing. And in this case, it would just have to do it. That's literally what it would be doing. Not in their wheelhouse, is the phrase that my friend Jerome Powell always uses. (laughs) It would have to become his wheelhouse quickly. So let's assume that the Fed can't save us then for all the reasons we've just said. Imagine we get into the end of May, that June deadline, the moving target is looming. What are some of the workarounds, legal or otherwise, that the administration could attempt? What's Biden going to do? So there are four main categories of escape that I've managed to identify. Shall we start with the first one, which is just to say this debt ceiling law is unconstitutional and I'll see you in court. I'm paying my bills. (laughs) Could he do that? I think if the consequence was a global meltdown and political instability in the US, which is, you know, the end game that we're talking about, then I think there'd be a case for that. So I wouldn't rule out that possibility at all. No, and I think it would actually be quite likely because what you have here effectively, as we've said, is the legislative body of the government, Congress, has passed two conflicting laws. So you have to obey one of them. If you don't pay the bills, you're breaching the law. And if you breach the debt ceiling, you're breaching the law. So you're going to break the law one way or another. And there is some argument from constitutional scholars that the 14th Amendment, which was ratified in 1868, just after the Civil War, that might allow the president to win this in court. So section four of the 14th Amendment says, in part, the validity of the public debt of the United States, authorised by law, shall not be questioned. To me, that re- I mean, I'm not a constitutional scholar, far from it, but from this side of the Atlantic, to me, that reads as the Constitution saying, you can't default on your debts. Whatever Congress has made a law of, constitutionally, this is the situation. And Clinton actually said that in 2011. This was during the 1995-96 budget standoff with the Republicans. Yeah, he was looking backwards, wasn't he, and saying what he was thinking at the time. And he said that he'd use the 14th Amendment without hesitation and force the courts to stop me. Yeah, and Obama actually went the other way. In 2011, he said he talked with his lawyers and they were, quote, not persuaded that this is a winning argument. Now, it's interesting. I think Obama and Clinton were both from a constitutional law background, actually, weren't they? So there is a debate, right? This is not a slam dunk. But if it's this or blowing up the world, I think you go to court, don't you? And keep paying the bills. (laughs) The interesting thing, if you end up in front of the judges, right, the federal judges, if they ruled against the administration and say, no, you can't pay any bills, then those federal judges are not getting paid. They're not getting their paychecks, are they? So it's a bit of an incentive for them to uh, rule the debt ceiling unconstitutional. It would get passed, wouldn't it? Yeah. (laughs) Okay, so that's number one. We're basically just carrying on and saying, screw you, Congress. Exit clause number two, I'm going to come out and say it, my favourite option, is to mint a trillion dollar platinum coin. So just stepping back, I think it helps to understand how all these moving parts work. There are three players in this story. The first one is Congress. So that's the House of Representatives and the Senate. They set the fiscal policy, they create the law. The second party is the US Treasury Department. So think of them as maintaining the national treasure. They mint coins, 
They print dollar bills, they collect tax, they issue bonds, and they basically look after the books to ensure that the US has got enough money to run. And then you've got the central bank. So Jerome Powell's heading that, and they set the monetary policy, and they distribute new currency for the US Treasury. So those are the three players. Now let's go back to the issuance of money. So when the mint ships a coin from its vaults to those of the Fed, it books a profit, and that's known as seniorage. And the amount that's paid is equal to the difference between the coin's face value and its cost of production. Okay, I kind of understand that. So the metal is a trivial cost, but we're charging, you know, a dollar for the coin or whatever it might be. Yeah, so that's the way it works. And usually there's a pretty big transfer to the general fund from the US Mint year by year. So, for example, in 2019, they transferred $540 million to the Treasury General Fund. There's just a brilliant loophole in the US law. So if you want to look this up yourself, it's 31 USC 51112K. Everyone's rushing to Google right now. (laughs) (laughs) The secretary may mint and issue bullion and proof platinum coins in accordance with such specifications, designs, varieties, quantities, denominations and inscriptions as a secretary in the secretary's discretion may prescribe from time to time. From time to time. From time to time. From time to time. (laughs) Now, what's weird about platinum coins is, according to this statute, they can be minted in any denomination, no specification of the amount, whereas coins in any other specified metal are restricted to amounts of $50, $25, $10, $5, and $1. Okay, I can see the loophole here and why I've kicked (laughs) off with the word trillion. (laughs) The interesting thing, actually, is how this law came about. So platinum coins were there just as a novelty and collected by interested members of the public. And apparently collectors had been complaining that the smallest platinum coins that were available were still too expensive for them. You know, some people don't have much money, but they still want a little pointless platinum coin. So the director of the US Mint at the time, Philip Deal, and a Republican congressman, Michael Castle, authored this bill, which made this loophole for platinum coins. They didn't ever imagine it would be used to mint a trillion dollar coin, let's be honest. But the law as written, at face value, allows it. Now, when I think of a trillion dollar platinum coin, I'm imagining some huge coin which the treasury is going to roll down Capitol Hill to the Fed. (laughs) But it's not, is it? You could just, you know, make it the size of a normal coin and say it's worth a trillion and get all that seniorage. You'd have to look after it very carefully. I mean, it's ultimately ridiculous, right, that this could be a way out of it. I think it stacks up legally. Everyone says it stacks up, like the law allows it. And it would effectively be a form of QE, right? Functionally equivalent anyway. The Fed would just be printing money and handing it to the Treasury. But just think, Michael, this could be the best heist movie ever. But what would you do if you had the trillion dollar coin? You stole it. You couldn't spend it. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, this is the one I favour because the debt ceiling is a ridiculous law. So it needs a ridiculous solution. Well, I just think that in terms of credibility, this wouldn't help the United States. In fact, it would probably have the opposite effect. But would you go for this if it was the only option rather than a default? Oh, if it was an option between this and a default, yeah. But I think the legal course would probably be more likely. Although, you know, the nerd in me kind of likes this option best. I mean, yeah, it would obviously royal markets. And also the political consequences would be so long lasting, wouldn't they? You've politicised the Fed through this. And you've basically taken the power away from Congress. Although you could say Congress passed this law in the first place, so they should have read the law carefully before they passed it. (laughs) (laughs) 
Option number three is could we do some financial engineering with how government bonds work to get around the law? Because the debt ceiling law says the US can only borrow $31 trillion. But how is that actually defined? So it's actually defined according to the face value of the bonds. So if you buy a government bond, usually it's denominated in chunks of $100, say. Now, the debt ceiling is all about that principle. It's not about the coupons. So the coupons don't count towards national debt, whereas the principle does. So the coupon is kind of like the interest payments that you're getting when you own the bond, right? Yeah, so let's say you buy a five-year bond. It's going to pay you, say, 4% every year for the next five years, plus you get your 100 back at maturity. So the government gets $100 on day one, pays a bit of interest, and then pays you back your 100 in five years' time. Now, the principal, the $100, counts towards the debt ceiling, but the coupon doesn't. Okay, so that does allow us a bit of wiggle room then. We can tilt the maths in our favour as the government. So I think Matt Levine in one of his recent newsletters kind of described an example of how this could work. So the idea is that the Treasury would sell you a one-year $100 bond and the interest rate on that would be something crazy like 109%. So in a year's time, you'll get back $209. Your original $100 that you paid, that's the face amount of the bond, plus 109% in interest. So the face amount is only 100 but the value today is $200. Yeah, because I want that bond. If it's paying me 100% interest, I really want to own that rather than the poxy 4.5% interest I'd get on a normal bond. And Treasury would be willing to sell it to you for $200. Oh, kind of them. (laughs) (laughs) So I think there's some effect is it only adds $100 to the national debt in this example. Because that's the face value of the bond. That's the face value. But the Treasury is actually receiving $200 for it. So it's a weird wheeze. You're basically transferring money from the principal to the coupon, right? Just to get around this law. Exactly. And this happens all the time. If you look at some securitized products in countries where, say, income is not taxed heavily, but capital gains are, then you have these securitizing products which convert one into the other. Interesting. So effectively, you'd be doing what a structurer would do for an investment bank, but he would be doing it for a government. So I think legally it kind of works because the Treasury can set whatever interest rate it wants and sell a bond for whatever it wants. And the face value is what counts according to the debt ceiling law. But it's probably not the best look again, right? So Matt Levine says, as an actual thing for the US Treasury to do, I think it is obviously very bad. The US Treasury market, perhaps the most important financial market in the world, should not be run on accounting gimmicks. On the other hand, the US Treasury market should not default either. (laughs) So yeah, you're trapped between a rock and a hard place, really. There are no good options here. I'd say they go for the legal one, the first one. I think the elephant in the room here, with everything we've talked about, is the question of whether the US national debt is actually a problem. Is it sustainable? Or do the Republicans here have a point, even if they're going about it in a destructive way? Now, the key thing is the level of debt to GDP, which in the US is now over 120%. The real question is whether it's going to trend downwards over time or upwards. And just to place that in some kind of historical context, after the Second World War, the debt to GDP ratio in the US was just above 100, less than 110%, but over 100. Currently, it's higher than that. And if you look at the CBO, which is the Congressional Budget Office, which is a non-partisan institution that extrapolates the US debt situation, they think that it's currently unsustainable. 
that's based on laws as currently passed, right? Yeah. It doesn't account for the fact that the US can adjust its spending, but also income could pick up in the future. But it's based on certain growth assumptions, but also on how much spending there'll be based on current trends. But at a fundamental level, what actually is the problem with national debt? So the gist is, think of it as if it's a credit card. I know this is a bad example, but imagine that your debt is increasing at a certain rate. If your income is increasing at a greater rate, that's not a problem. So as long as GDP, which generates income for the US through taxes, as long as the US economy is growing more quickly than the debt, it's not a problem. That's the mathematical inequality which you have to solve. Grow faster than your debt. But what would happen if you didn't and debt as a percentage of GDP kept rising? When does it become a problem? So if Japan's national debt is over 200%, what are we looking for in the economy? What would actually happen? It becomes a problem if people stop buying your debt, if they lose faith in your ability to work as an economy and to service the coupons. Because at that point, people will not buy your debt. In the US, we're just miles and miles and miles away from that because everyone in the world is willing to buy US treasuries. So you might stop being able to plug your deficits. Yeah. But then people have stopped buying Japanese debt, but their central bank just buys it, more or less. Where's the issue? Like, what's happened? I guess at a certain point, that itself becomes a problem because the Japanese central bank has to fund it via generating new money, effectively. And if that goes beyond a certain level, then you could start to see inflationary problems. That's what I was getting to. The real constraint here is inflation, right? And this is a kind of doom scenario which many gold investors, gold bucks, and also cryptocurrency investors love because it suggests that money effectively could become worthless. And it's true, it could, if people lose faith in it. The horrible fact is that ultimately it's all a bit of a con game in the sense that you just have to convince people you're credible. And the thing is, no one really knows where that danger point is, I think, with national debt. Like Japan is the obvious example. Like you don't know when it's going to become unsustainable. And Noah Smith, the economist, compares it to the idea of we're walking down this infinite corridor towards an invisible pit, which I like. like. There is a pit there. There is a real danger. But who knows where it comes on this trajectory? I think for the US, it's a long way away. The US is such a large economy and people still have faith in the US government. But that's a kind of privilege which you don't want to squander. There's a lovely quote also from Thomas Gagan. He says, debt has been the country's greatest asset, as Hamilton knew it would be. Debt let us grow. Debt let us win World Wars I and II. In this century, debt saved us from the financial crisis. Debt let us survive COVID. A fine recent book in defence of public debt by four distinguished economists explains how much we owe to debt. We have an obligation to save it for crises ahead and to use every means, legal or political, that may help to do so. I mean, I guess there's a point hidden in that quote, which is we have an obligation to save it for crises ahead. Now, is that the point that we don't know when the next COVID or whatever is going to hit and we have to spend a huge amount of money? So in the times when we're not in crisis, should we be paying down the bills a bit? Absolutely. I think people haven't really had a huge crisis, which isn't financial, for a long time. Covid was the first one which was kind of thrown at us by nature. And there are much worse natural problems that could come our way. You know, something like an asteroid impact. Well, I always think, you know, at some point the California fault line is going to go and maybe destroy quite a lot of the West Coast. And that's going to cost a lot to rebuild when it comes to it. And that's going to be using a lot of the US national debt capacity. 
or it could be some kind of volcanic problem. So if you look back in time, you can get these huge volcanoes, such as the Deccan Traps in India, which released huge amounts of carbon dioxide. And some people think that caused, or at least contributed, to the extinction of the dinosaurs. If we'd had national debt back then, we could have saved the dinosaurs, Roman. <laughs> <laughs> so there are all sorts of crises which nature could throw at us, which would threaten the existence of humanity, where we would have to get our stuff together. I mean, some people would say it's going to throw one at us with climate change, and we need to invest and use our debt capacity now to fend that off. We're in crises. It's just the one that's going to be drawn out over decades. And we've got to remember the reason why we have money is to get stuff done. And if you have to pull together as a species, then how would we do that? Well, we'd have to direct resources to saving the day. And that means money and that means debt. Yeah. And my last question to wrap up is let's bring it back to us as investors. This is your classic tail risk, isn't it? Low probability, but highly consequential. Should we think about doing anything with our portfolios with this looming? Or is it just that classic idea of don't allocate based on tail risks? So if you plot US Treasury yields heading towards the exhaustion of the Treasury's extraordinary measures, and this was in 2011, yields really blew out and bond prices fell sharply in the week or so leading up to that exhaustion. So in this case, it would be in June, roughly in 2023, when that exhaustion would occur. So that's the point at which things will really start to happen, when it looks like they're really going to go to the wire. So if you are going to do something tactical, that would be the time to do it. You literally leave it to the last minute. Interesting. And if we knew with 100% certainty that this tail risk was going to happen, the US was going to default on its debt, all hell was going to break loose in financial markets, what would you do if you knew that with a crystal ball? You wouldn't go to cash, I don't think, would you? I wouldn't go to Bitcoin. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Bitcoin's never the answer. What would you go to? Because the dollar might be in trouble, right? So yeah, yeah. it's not a safe haven in this instance. Gold would probably be something to think about. When a push really comes to shove, you know, gold is usually a pretty good hedge. But of course, it's denominated in dollars, and that would probably push up its value. Yeah, I guess this is the gold bug stream, though, isn't it? Yeah. You know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the collapse of the US. <laughs> I don't think it's a thing they should really wish for, though, even if you have a nice slug of gold buried in your garden. And I wouldn't rule out cash. You know, I think that in the UK, for example, sterling would probably still be worth having if, you know, this really happened. But let's hope it doesn't happen. I don't think it will, right? It's not happened before. <laughs> but the point also is that how long would it last? You know, it would create a huge ruction in markets and that would create a massive buying opportunity, which is another reason to have cash on hand, to buy all those hugely depressed assets. It would literally be the chance in a lifetime to invest. Yeah. And the political pressure as markets, you know, dropped like a stone would become huge in the US to just resolve the debt ceiling straight away. Right. And there would be a resolution, as you say, you know, the pressure would be huge to do it. But even if they stepped off the ledge just for a day or two, right, it's not fully reversible. Their credit rating won't go back to where it was. Their yields probably won't come back down to where they are now. And people have been talking about the US stopping being a reserve currency. I think that would be the kind of transformative event which would create it. That would be the moment, wouldn't it? So they'd be crazy to do it. Now, if you're worried about tail risks such as a US debt default and want to discuss its impact on your portfolio, if any, then one forum where you could do that is as a member of the Pension Craft community. If you want to learn more about that, just go to pensioncraft.com. Okay, today's dumb question of the week comes from one of our listeners, Dan. And he's basically asking, 
who is the national debt owed to anyway? We talk about this debt all the time. There's someone on the other side of this who's receiving the coupon payments and who is owed the money. But who is it? So right now, if we look at the Fed's balance sheet, it owns about $5.5 trillion worth. So that's 17% of the outstanding debt. So that's a big chunk of US treasuries. Yeah, but that still leaves 83% to be accounted for, Roman. Who owns the rest of it? First of all, let's start off with a broad breakdown between intragovernmental holdings. So effectively, this is the US government owing money to itself and debt held by the public, which is private investors such as you and I, but also institutional investors. So roughly speaking, if we split it according to intragovernmental holdings, so these would be things like government pension funds, those would amount to about a fifth of the debt. So that's about $6.8 trillion. The debt held by the public, which includes the Federal Reserve, weirdly, would be another $24 trillion. So four-fifths held by the public, one-fifth held by intragovernmental holdings. Okay, the first question that comes to mind, why does the US government owe money to itself? Well, look, I mean, if you've got a pension scheme, which is part of the government, then, you know, they're going to buy treasuries. I think it kind of makes sense. No, I get it. So there's Social Security, they have a surplus to invest, they buy treasuries. So it's the government promising to pay back Social Security later. But we keep talking about this 31 trillion national debt. If you exclude all the debt owned by the government itself, that comes down to 24 trillion. And then if you exclude the Federal Reserve bit, which you just mentioned is another 5 trillion or what, we're under 20 trillion now that is owed to like actual non-governmental organisations. Yeah, it's certainly distorted recently, that's for sure. But it's not how people typically see it. When they think of the government debt, they think, oh, we owe it all to China or whatever. But it's really not like that. <laughs> no, it's not. And in fact, the amount which is held by foreign investors is usually quite small. You can actually break down the foreign holders of US debt. Japan's the biggest holder. It's got just over a trillion dollars worth. China, just under a trillion. UK's got about 600 billion. And then we get to the slightly dodgy bit, which is the Cayman Islands, because that's 300 billion, but nobody really knows who those people are. (laughs) No, people in the Cayman Islands just really like treasuries. (laughs) Of course, this is things like hedge funds who want to own it via a trust. So if you summed up all the foreign and international investors, that accounts for roughly seven and a half trillion US dollars of the national debt. Which is just under a quarter. And then mutual funds own just over three trillion. State and local governments in the US own around one and a half trillion dollars of this debt. So it is a kind of pick a mix, right? And it's partly because, like you said before, this is the safe asset in the world and everyone wants a piece of it. And while that remains the case, yields will remain low on US treasuries. One of the things that kind of annoys me is when people say, you know, who's going to buy all this debt? Well, a lot of people are going to buy this debt because there's a huge demand for it. And a lot of it is institutional. People who don't really have a choice. Yeah, that's true. And it's interesting that some of the misunderstanding here, if we're just talking about the direct effects of a US default, not all the market blowing up, but just who are we stiffing, right, by not paying the bills. If you added up the debt held by Social Security and all the retirement and pension funds, almost half is held in trust for American retirees. So if you're talking about who would you be screwing over, if somehow you could not pay the debt with no consequences, then it's current and future retirees in the US who are hurt more than anything. It's grandma and grandpa. Yeah, I think as a debt investor, the deal is as follows, right? You give money to the US government with the understanding that you'll be repaid. That deal, that contract with the government must never be broken. 
you know, squandering that trust is something which would be catastrophic for the US government. Oh, I can't even default once, Roman. Let me default once. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for joining us for many happy returns. Do send us your questions, no matter how dumb, at the email address mhr at pensioncraft.com. And do remember to check out pensioncraft.com for all the information about our membership and investment coaching options. Many Happy Returns is a Pension Craft production, co-hosted and executive produced by Romin Nakiza and Michael Pugh. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes and is not financial advice. We do not provide recommendations or endorse any decision to buy, sell or hold any security. We cannot be held responsible for any actions listeners may take and investors are encouraged to seek independent financial advice.